Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. We are back with a new season of Club Book and we'll be hosting eight exciting events from March to May 2019 all around the Twin Cities Metro. And we look forward to having you join us. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We'd like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Alex Kotlowitz at Dakota County Library, Wentworth. Peabody Award-winning journalist and New York Times best-selling author, Alex Kotlowitz is one of the nation's foremost commentators on urban violence and community perseverance. He is best known for the seminal but haunting There Are No Children Here, the real-life story of nine and 11-year-old brothers in Chicago's most crime-ridden public housing complex. Oprah Winfrey produced and starred in a film version of There Are No Children Here in 1993. His 2007 follow-up, The Other Side of the River, shines a light on two towns in southern Michigan as a microcosm for the racial divides still prevalent in America. In addition to numerous journalism plaudits, Kotlowitz won an Emmy Award as producer for the 2011 documentary, The Interpreters, based on a gripping New York Times Magazine article researched by the author. Kotlowitz returns to Chicago for his newest expose, An American Summer, Love and Death in Chicago. In it, he shares heart-wrenching vignettes of residents who lived through Chicago's most violent summer on record, and paints a fresh, honest portrait of a city in turmoil. It hit shelves in March. Thanks. Uh, well, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, so I, my, the book just came out last Tuesday, so this is, I was in New York last week doing press, and so this is my first public event talking about the book, um, so I'm looking forward to it. So I thought what I would do is talk for a bit um, and also do uh, read a bit from the book as well. Um, and I want to begin, if I could, by just sharing with you uh, part of a story from early on in the book. And it's, um, it involves a young man named Marcelo. And when I met Marcelo, he was uh, 17 years old. And um, he had, his life, to say the least, was pretty precarious. Um, he was really kind of walking a tightrope. Um, a year earlier, before I met him, he'd been shot. Um, he w Marcelo ran with a local gang in his neighborhood and been shot in both legs. Um, but the thing about it is, is that he was also a straight-A student um, at one of the city's most prominent uh, uh, parochial schools. Um, and as one of his, as his friends like to call, they would call him the stupid smart kid. Um, and uh, 
And after he got shot, he knew that the only way he was going to sort of manage to move on was to get out of that neighborhood. And he actually, on his own, got himself into what is kind of this hidden jewel in the city, a place called Mercy Home for Boys and Girls, which takes wayward kids. And usually, the way Mercy works is you can't get into Mercy without the um, involvement of your parents or parent. But Marcello was so insistent, it was the first time they had taken a kid completely on his own. So Marcello moves in there, and he just flourishes. And a year into his stay at Mercy, he goes home one weekend to visit his mom. And when he's home, he ends up going out with a group of three friends he had known from the neighborhood. And they end up driving around um, the streets um, looking for marks, looking for people they can steal their cell phones from. Uh, Marcello kind of, it was a, he had been drinking the night before. He was, he had, um, uh, was having trouble with his girlfriend. And it was, a, to be perfectly frank about it, a, a, a pretty violent afternoon. They ended up beating up two of the young men whose cell phones they took. Um, and Marcelo um, and his friends got caught. Um, and he faced a felony conviction. When I, and when I met Marcelo, uh, he was actually in court um, facing the felony charge. Um, and he was, you know, his bond had been set at $300,000, um, in part because the police and the city see this kind of robbery as a kind of gateway to more violent crimes. And if you had met Marcelo in that moment, I think your response would have been lock him up, get him off the streets. Well, I'll get back to Marcello's story later, but suffice it to say that I think you'll be knocked off balance by his journey. At least I was. You know, often we think we know the shape of one's narrative when, in fact, we know very little. Um, and I tell this story up front to caution us against what the Nigerian-born novelist uh, Chimamande Adichie calls the danger of the single narrative the danger of thinking that people have a single story. That, for instance, if you're growing up poor in Chicago's West Side, that your story is the same as the person's next door. Or that in the case of Marcello, because you're poor and a gang member, that we think we know the shape of your narrative. Um, as Adichie warned, show people one way over and over again, and that's what they become. And I mention this before anything else because stories are essential to understanding who we are. Stories are how we make sense of the world and how we make sense of our own lives and those around us. If you think about it, stories inform policy. They inform the way we allocate resources. They inform the way we think about ourselves and others. They inform the present and help sculpt the future. And so we need to take care not to craft a single narrative, not to pigeonhole people not to think we already know when, in fact, we know very little. Um, Adichie also suggests that stories, if not told honestly, um, leads to a lazy, simplified view uh, of the world, a lazy, simplified view of humanity. And I mention all this by way of telling you what I do. You know, People ask me what I do for a living, and I tell them I'm an author, I'm a journalist, but the truth of the matter is I'm a storyteller. Um, at this point in my life, it's about all I'm good at, except maybe basketball. But, um, and, um, and we tell stories. I, I think there's a misunderstanding about story, about why we tell stories. Um, stories are not meant to answer questions. 
We tell stories instead to ask questions, uh, both of ourselves and others. Um, if you think about it, stories, when done well, what they do is they introduce us to people we otherwise might not meet, like Marcelo, or bring us into communities we otherwise might not venture into. But the other thing about stories is stories can often make us feel less alone. You know, we read stories, and I probably you guys have all been there where you've read a book or seen a movie where you think to yourself, that's my story there. Um, stories give affirmation to our own personal and collective experiences. And at the center of storytelling is this kind of notion of empathy, you know, this capacity to imagine yourself as somebody else, to imagine the world through somebody else's shoes. Um, and not only is empathy the centripetal force of storytelling, but it's also the centripetal force of community. It's what holds us together. And so when I go out to tell stories, um, the stories in this book, what I'm trying to do is find empathy with the people I'm spending time with. I'm trying not to judge them, but rather to understand what pushes and pulls at them, what motivates them, why they make the choices they do. I also should say that I write out of a fundamental belief that life ought to be fair. Um, and so often the stories that I tell are stories that I'm telling because for one reason or another, life isn't fair. Um, and it certainly is the case for the people uh, I write about in American Summer. Um, so what I set out to do in an American Summer is to tell stories, stories that upend what we think we know, that challenge our assumptions, and certainly challenge my assumptions, um, and ask this kind of foundational question, and that is who we are, who are we as a, as a nation? Um, the roots of this book, actually, I think of this book as kind of a bookend to my first book, There Are No Children Here, which came out in 1991, um, which again was a story about two boys growing up in a public housing complex on the west side of Chicago, Lafayette and Farrow. They were 12 and nine years old when I first met them. And it was uh, a chronicle of what it meant to grow up in the kind of profound poverty of our cities and what all the forces bearing down on the lives of these two boys. Um, and one of the things that was quite apparent to me very early on was the violence in that community. I was really knocked off balance. And I, always, I remember the very first day I met Lafayette, and I had never set foot in public housing before. And, um, and I was really unsettled by the conditions. Um, and I thought this incredible deep sense of shame, how could I possibly not know, but I always remember when I first met Lafayette, we were sitting talking, and Lafayette was this kid who didn't have much affect, didn't have much emotion, and he was telling me about an older boy who a couple of weeks earlier who had been shot in a gang battle and, been, and died on the stairwell outside of his first floor apartment. And I remember sitting there th not fully believing him because there was just no emotion on his face. And I remember Lafayette must have sensed that because he literally physically took me by the arm and pulled me out to the stairwells to show me the bloodstains on the stairs. Um, and that, that stayed with me. And over the years, um, since the publication of There Are No Children Here, I've been deeply disturbed and unsettled by the stubborn persistence of violence in my city. Um, uh, the numbers are absolutely staggering. In the 20 years between 1990 and 2010, 14,033 people killed another 60,000 people shot and wounded by gunfire. And this is in a fairly concentrated part of the city. And I should say that as bad as Chicago is, it's not even in the top 10 worst 
cities in this country. I could have just as easily done this book in Baltimore, New Orleans, and Philadelphia, Detroit. I could go on. But I believe that in the end that we've completely underestimated the impact of the violence on both the spirit of individuals and the spirit of community. And the very first story I tell in the book is a story about Farrell, um, <clears throat> the boy, the younger boy from There Are No Children Here. And um, after There Are No Children Here came out, um, Farrell, who was really studious, he loved school, um, he really was looking for a quiet place where he could study. There were streams of people coming in and out of his apartment. And so at some point he asked if he could come stay with me for a few days uh, to catch up with his work. Uh, I was single at the time and a few days turned into a few weeks to a few months and into ultimately into six years. Pharaoh ended up moving in, my, bless my wife's heart, but when I got married, uh, uh, Pharaoh came to live with us. Um, and at one point, Farrell graduated from high school and was about to go off to uh, Southern Illinois University. And my wife and I and our young daughter at the time went back to visit my parents back east. I'm from New York originally. And shortly after midnight, this is before cell phones, uh, I got a, the phone rang. And, and it was a detective, Ann Chambers, who I knew from my time working on There Are No Children Here. And she was standing in our kitchen. And she told me that <coughs> Farrell apparently had taken a cab from our house to his mother's house. And as he got to his mother's house uh, and got out, was getting out of the cab, two young men came up and yanked him out of the cab, jumped into the back seat, and one of them put a pistol to the pistol to the back of the cab driver's head and shot and killed him. And, uh, and initially, there was concern that Farrow had set them up. But Anne uh, Chambers, the detective, fortunately knew Farrow from her time in the projects and knew that Farrow was not capable of something like that. And so they very quickly realized that he simply happened to <clears throat> uh, that he had nothing to do with this. Um, but what was apparent is that this moment had stayed with Pharaoh. And so I want to read a, just a short section here when um, not long ago um, I went, I was at a restaurant with Pharaoh and was asking him about this incident of some 20 years earlier. Not long ago, over lunch at a restaurant, I asked Pharaoh how much he remembered of that evening from nearly 20 years ago. I can't get it out of my mind, he told me. He said the cab driver, a middle-aged white man whose name I later learned was Michael Flossie, engaged him in conversation that he wanted to know all about Farrow. When Farrow told Flossie he was headed to Southern Illinois University, Flossie told him, God must have really blessed you. Flossie shared with Farrow that he'd been saving for years to move his family to Texas and that the move was imminent. He seemed so happy, Farrow told me, when they pulled up to Farrell's mom's house, the young men leaped into the cab as Farrell was getting out. It's here at this restaurant that I come to realize how much this incident is a part of him. In recounting that afternoon, Farrell seems in a different place. One minute he is sitting across from me in the booth, and then he scoots out as if he's getting out of a cab. He recoils as if someone's just jumped in front of him. He's not present. Instead, he's there in that moment. Farrow tells me he ran to the porch, and then after he heard the gunshot, he returned to the cab, which had rammed a parked car. Flossie, he says, was slumped over the steering wheel, and the windshield was splattered with blood. What Farrow doesn't remember is that according to court records, he later called the cab company to find out whether Flossie had lived. Farrow, at this point in the restaurant, looks around. His eyes are wide with fright. He's hyperventilating. 
In the middle of the restaurant, he's crouching as if he's trying to disappear. I tell him to sit down. I have to tell him again. It's like I'm there, he says. I'm out of breath. The violence is in his bones. And so that's really what this book is ultimately about, is how the violence gets in your bones, how it comes to shape you and how people work so hard to keep it from completely defining them. <clears throat> and the question that I ask at the beginning, you know, in the wake of the tragedies at Newtown and Parkland, we asked all the right questions. You know, how could this happen? What would bring a young man to commit such an atrocity? How do the families and the community continue on while carrying the full weight of this tragedy? In Chicago neighborhoods like Englewood or North Lawndale, where in one year they lose twice the number of people killed in Newtown, no one's asking those questions. And I don't mean to suggest that one is more tragic than the other, but rather to put out, point out that the national grieving and questioning doesn't extend to corners of this country where car such carnage has become almost routine. Um, and I think it's in these neighborhoods, in these <clears throat> among the most desperate and forlorn, um, that we come to understand the makings of who we are as a nation. We're a country marked by this paradox that of holding such generosity beside such neglect. So I set out with this book um, to write about one summer. And I will tell you, as a, <clears throat> as a writer, one of the things that we're always looking for, whether you're writing nonfiction or fiction, you're looking for boundaries. And the boundaries may be a group of characters. It may be a place. And so for me, it was this moment in time, this one summer. And I also thought that one summer, um, that at least the reporting would be reasonably easy, and I could do it over the course of that three months and then maybe another three months of reporting and write and finish a book in two years, which I've never done before. Um, and I must concede to some naivete because, of course, as I began to find these stories and spend time with individuals, their stories unfurled over time. And as they did, they revealed so much more about the individuals as well as the stories at hand. And so the book contains 14 stories, some of which course through the whole summer, some of which are self-contained. And there's a little trickery of, of time going on in the book because you enter a story often always on the date um, of that, of that, in that summer. And then you go back in time. And then some of them you go forward in time. Sometimes as much as two or three years and then get pulled back into the summer. It's almost like going into this portal um, and experiencing the this this story. And I, that summer, um, I, you know, I embedded with a homicide unit. I spent, uh, I hung out at a trauma center. I spent evenings uh, sharing beers with uh, uh, some old <coughs> former gang members who had a little uh, uh, juke joint where they would just go to play cards and shoot dice, a kind of refuge from the streets. Uh, I spent time at the courthouse. Um, uh, many of the people I met with uh, 20 to 30 times over the course of a couple of years. Marcelo, for instance, when I met him, he was uh, uh, released on house arrest. And so I would go over every Sunday to Mercy Home for Boys and Girls. And uh, Mar Marcelo's a guy of routine, as am I. And so I'd bring over the same sandwich every Sunday. We'd eat lunch, play chess. He'd inevitably beat me. And then we'd sit around and talk. Um, 
And you know, people often ask me, how do I win the trust of people that I spend time with? And there's no magic about that. I mean, I try to be as direct and straight and honest with them about what my intentions are, um, and also recognize that it's an incredible privilege to be led into their lives. These are not public officials. These are private individuals who have absolutely no obligation to share their story with me. Um, and so I try to honor that. Um, and, um, and the other thing is I have the luxury of, of time. And so these are people who I met with over the course of three or four years. Um, and while many of these stories clearly are stories about death, you can't write about death without celebrating life. Um, and in almost all of these stories, these are people who are emerging from the violence and trying to reckon with it, and people who are standing erect in this world that's slumping around them, and some of them moving ahead forcefully, some of them moving ahead heroically, pushing back. Um, one of the stories um, that occurs early on in the book is the story of this woman, Lisa Daniels, this kind of remarkable woman. And Lisa was a single mom living on the south side. Her oldest son was studying, went off to study engineering at the University of Illinois. And her younger son, Darren, uh, kind of strayed. And uh, he began to get involved in dealing drugs. And Lisa did everything she could to hold Darren close, um, but without success. And on one afternoon, uh, Darren uh, was going to buy some marijuana from a small-time drug dealer, though I think his intention was to rob the drug dealer, and I think the drug dealer's intention was to rob Darren. And a shootout ensues, and Darren is killed. And one of the first things that happens is the local newspaper, of course, publishes a story. And the story is all about the fact that Darren, the victim, the, uh, uh, was, uh, had a criminal past, had served a time in, in prison. Um, and so Lisa made it her mission to make sure that people understood there was more to her son than just that. Um, it was really important for her to know that her son was this rich, full, complicated human being. In fact, at one point, Lisa gets a, a, a license plate frame made that reads, he was my son, his name was Darren. But the other thing that happens is that Lisa assumes that the um, case of the person who shot her son was going to be kind of straightforward. It was, uh, you know, there was no question about the fact that he had killed Darren um, and that he would go to court and get convicted and get sentenced to a long time in prison. Um, but what happens is, is that the key witness uh, has a criminal record. And so the state's attorney approaches Lisa and says to her, you know, we'd like to offer a plea deal to uh, the person who killed your son. And Lisa says, OK, I'm, I'm agreeable to that under one condition. And that is that I can read a victim's impact statement at the sentencing. And ordinarily, when people read a victim's impact statement in court, it's usually about how that crime has impacted them and impacted their family. But Lisa gets up there, and I'm going to read you just a part of her uh, <clears throat> of this impact statement. My son wasn't perfect. He made bad decisions and lifestyle choices that cost him his life. But at the end of the day, none of his choices mattered because he was my son, and I loved him and miss him terribly. 
The morning after he was killed, the Southtown newspaper headline read, man shot to death in Forest Park, in Park Forest had drug and weapon felony convictions. And from that day to this, I awake every day with the mission and purpose that his legacy will not be defined by his worst mistake. No one should, not even the defendant. Bishop Desmond Tutu is quoted as saying, my humanity is bound up in yours, for we can only be human together. I believe that statement to be true. I believe that we are all connected by our humanity, and I cannot speak for my son's humanity without speaking for the same humanity of the man who by one really bad decision took his life. I have and will always continue to speak on Darren's behalf, but today I speak for you, Michael Reed, who had shot her son. Because the truth is that things could have gone differently that day, and this young man could have just as easily lost his life. And Darren would be sitting in this seat needing someone to speak on his behalf. I am a mother and I know the heart of a mother. So I will speak from a mother's heart for a child who made a horrible, horrible choice. And so in the end, Lisa asked the court for leniency for Michael uh, Reed who killed her son and ends up having a correspondence with him and offering to help him when he gets out of prison. And I'm just gonna read you the very end of this story, the very end of this chapter. From prison, Michael Reed told me, I just want her to know I'm not a cold-blooded killer. When I mentioned this to Lisa, she told me she already knew that. It makes me sad that he got the impression that that's what people thought of him. I never thought anything close to that. I would stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with anybody who thinks that that's who he is. I mean, she's a remarkable, remarkable woman. Um, there are also stories in this book uh, that left me shuddering with anger. One in particular of a young man, Romaine Hill, who at the age of 19 is, is shot uh, and uh, they were shooting at somebody else. And Romaine does something really remarkable in for somebody in Chicago. He not only identifies the shooter, but he agrees to testify. And as a result, the shooter ends up pleading and gets 15 years uh, in prison. And, um, and then Romaine, over the course of the next year, receives these threats, almost daily threats, uh, for friends, from friends of the shooter. And then on a Saturday afternoon in a park, Seward Park in Chicago, a very gentrified part of the city, um, somebody comes up, uh, remains on his way to work, and uh, he has got earbuds in, he loved to listen to music, and somebody comes up behind him and puts a gun to his head and shoots and kills him. And there are all these witnesses, and yet nobody will come forward. And I had heard um, I, uh, that the detective, the lead detective in the case, that he was really angry about the fact that nobody would come forward. Um, and felt that it was all because of this no snitch culture in the streets. Um, and so I spent a year and a half trying to get this detective to sit down with me and I finally was able to and a really, really, really admirable man. Um, and he told me that in fact that wasn't the case, that he knew that everybody was afraid that if they testified that something might happen to them, look what happened to Remain. And he talked about how uh, that so much of the distrust um, between the people in the streets and the police had everything to do with the police's inability to solve crimes. In Chicago, you know, you've got a one in four chance of getting away with murder and a one in 10 chance of getting away with shooting somebody and wounding them. A nine in 10 chance, I'm sorry. You have a, so you have three in four chance of getting away with murder 
and a nine in 10 chance of getting away with shooting and wounding someone. The closure rates in the city are remarkably low. And so as a result, everybody knows who killed Remain, including the police. Um, and as a result, the, um, this is a kind of a term of art, um, the police have ruled this case exceptionally closed. There was nothing exceptional about the case, but that's how they rule it. And so if you look at the statistics at the end of the year in the police department, this is a case that's considered solved by the police department, even, nobody, even though nobody's ever been arrested. I should tell you that this, though, is not a book about public policy. Um, it's not my bellywick, and anybody who tells you they know what's working is lying. Um, um, rather, it's a book about the people I've come to know, people, as I said, who are emerging from the violence and trying to reckon with it, people whose stories ask us, again, who we are as a nation. Um, um, and often, you know, these are stories of those whose lives warrant just a paragraph in a newspaper. I remember years ago, the Chicago Sun-Times ran this headline um, which read, Murder at a Good Address. And it was the story of a dermatologist who'd been brutally stabbed at his office on the on Michigan Avenue, which is, you know, really tony part of the city. And its subject, uh, he was one of 467 murders that year in the city. And I got to say, I admired the headline for its brazenness and honesty. Um, because who would want to read a feature with the headline, Murder at a Bad Address? Um, you know, in Chicago, the wealthy and the well-heeled uh, die headline deaths, and the poor and the rambling die in silence. And so I think of this book as an effort to try to break that silence. Um, and again, my book is about those still standing, those who, in the wake of the violence, push on. Um, there's a story, for example, in the book, uh, which I won't tell in detail, but of a young man who, at the age of um, 18 and uh, his friend is shot and paralyzed um, and so Eddie Bocanegra in an act of vengeance goes out and shoots and kills someone and Eddie ends up serving 14 years in prison and his is a story about trying to find a way to forgive yourself for what you've done um, and Eddie spends every minute of his time trying uh, working uh, to try to undo some of the damage that he caused when he was younger he leaves I think one of the most inventive and creative anti-violence programs in the city where they work not only with uh, providing jobs for young people, which is something we've been doing, we've tried many years, but he's also insisting that they undergo cognitive behavioral therapy to reckon with the trauma that they've experienced. Um, it's something that's clear to anybody who's spent time working in these neighborhoods that you see this very same kind of symptoms uh, that veterans from returning from Iraq and Afghanistan have experienced. Uh, you know, easy to anger, uh, um, hypervigilance, uh, inability to sleep, self-medication. Um, the difference, of course, is there's nothing post about the post-traumatic stress because the violence is ongoing. And in fact, social workers working in Chicago have a kind of informal name for it and they call it complex loss. Um, this notion that you may lose a loved one, and yet you're looking over your shoulder at what might happen next. So I want to come back to Marcelo's story. Uh, well, you, you know, I thought I knew Marcelo, but I didn't. And I don't want to give away his entire story, a uh, story about the stupid smart kid. But suffice it to say um, that 
the people behind him, the people um, behind him, his family and those at Mercy Home for Boys and Girls never left his side. They refused to give up on him. Um, and he's doing well, uh, looking for a way, like Eddie, to forgive himself for what he did. And so I want to conclude by just reading um, this part with Marcelo towards the end of the book um, when I go over one Sunday afternoon to Mercy and visit with him. And I'm, I'm, we're joined by uh, Tom Gallardi, who works at Mercy and who's very close to Marcelo. Tom is a, uh, a vice president there, but he used to, he's a big guy. He used to be a lineman for um, um, Holy, the Holy Cross football team when he was in college. Many months later, I visit Marcelo on a Sunday afternoon, and Tom is there too. This time we meet, we meet in a boardroom on the first floor of Mercy. Marcelo's limping as he's just had the bullet removed and is fighting a subsequent infection. He's in a DePaul sweatshirt and sweatpants and has put on some weight and grown his hair out, both of which make him seem older and healthier. He's in this strange place between worlds, trying to figure out where he fits in, how or if what he's done in the past has shaped who he is now. He proceeds guardedly, fiercely independent, resolute to make this work on his own terms. He worries about being judged, and especially when it comes to family, he holds things close. You hear from your pops, Tom asks, his father's in prison. He's not doing real good. His health, he's on painkillers, his back. I just want to spend time with him when he gets out of prison. 17 years, he needs to stay alive. That's why I tell my girlfriend's brother, he's 14, to shut the fuck up, to stop yelling at his dad. He pauses and grins. I'd be a good youth worker. Yeah, you love to drop the F-bomb, Tom says. It gives texture to the conversation, Marcelo says, with a glint in his eyes. He then gets reflective. I feel like everyone here looks at me differently. Is it something I'm saying, Tom asks, something I'm doing? I know you care about me, but I feel like you look at me differently. I feel like I betrayed you. A lot of that shit might be your own shit. Was I disappointed that this happened? Yeah, great people make stupid ass decisions. You are who you are. Is this going to define you or is it going to motivate you? I'm just saying. Marcelo deliberates for a moment, his right leg pumping. Sometimes he says, I feel like I'm in this alternate universe. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our Clubbook audience for questions and comments for Alex Kotlowitz and his work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering what it was like working with the police to write this book. I mean, the police are a complicated animal, so I embedded with this homicide unit. I ended up not writing about that experience in part because I it all felt too familiar. In fact, it was kind of meta. The, my nickname, there's a show, maybe you guys know it, there's a show where there's a, a reporter who embeds with a homicide unit. It was, does anybody know the show? I can't remember. I can't remember the guy's, what? Castle. Ca Castle. 
Castle, right. So they used to call me Castle. That was my, so it was kind of very meta. I was called this name of this guy who was a reporter in a TV show, so anyway. But, so, you know, I, so I spent time with these detectives and, uh, you know, a couple of them have become good friends. One of them who um, I'm hoping to have lunch with when I get back, whose, um, whose politics are very different from mine, but who I really respect as a police officer is Ann Chambers, who I mentioned at the very beginning of the book, the other detective I mentioned. Um, but having said that, as you suggest, there's been this, this, the history of the police in Chicago is very fraught, especially with communities of color. And one of the stories in my book speaks to me, which is one of, talk about angry, it's a, a, a this is before police cams, um, and it's a, it's a horrific police shooting um, that actually turned out to be the head, the lead example in the Department of Justice scathing report about the police department. Um, for me, I think one of the issues is, is accountability. Um, that we're the inability to hold the police accountable um, for what are clearly uh, um, uh, some misguided um, and sometimes malicious acts. And you allude to the Laquan McDonald shooting, which of course is kind of, that happened a year after the summer I write about, this young man who was shot 16 times by a police officer, Jason Van Dyke, who's been sentenced uh, to prison uh, for second degree murder. But for me, the outrage of that story um, is that the officers in that case, um, I mean, just to back up, so there's a young man, Laquan McDonald, who's acting very um, unstable. He's got a knife in his hand and he's kind of, he's clearly high. And so the police do the absolute right thing. They, a group of them, a group of about six police officers follow Laquan McDonald trying to herd him, first of all, away from any kind of residential area. So they get him to an area of, of warehouses uh, and park trucks um, and just kind of surround him at a distance just to keep him at bay. And at that point is when Jason Van Dyke shows up and literally leaps out of his SUV and opens fire and shoots, shoots Laquan McDonald 16 times. Um, but in, subsequent to that, the police officers all lied about what happened there, and none of them were held accountable. And for me, that's where we've got to sort of begin to sort of re-examine um, uh, uh, how the police, uh, because the trust is completely eroded in a city of like, a city like Chicago. Um, so it's complicated, um, is what I is all I can say. And and there are you know I I don't mean to sound glib about it, but there are so many really good devoted cops out there whose lives are made so much harder because of incidences like this. This audience member asked about the gun control laws in Chicago. Well, actually, they have actually pretty restrictive gun laws in Chicago, and this is the myth, you know. The uh, gun rights activists, the NRA, will say, well, God, look, you know, we've got gun, strict gun control in Chicago, but look at the fact that you know, you've got all these murders. And in fact, you know, the police every year in the city take off 7,000 to 10,000 illegal guns off the streets every single year. It's this constant river. But the, the truth of the matter is, is we're surrounded um, by states like Indiana and Wisconsin where they have really lax gun control legislation. And so it's really easy to simply drive an hour or two and purchase these weapons. Um, and so without any kind of national gun control laws, um, we're, we're, this will all continue. This question is if Kotlowitz's understanding and perspective of violence changed over the years as he conducted his work. Yeah, I think it has. I, I, um, 
I mean, I think I, there was, um, that when I was reporting There Are No Children here, um, uh, I was so, um, uh, it all felt so new and so extraordinary what I was experiencing that I don't think I fully grappled with what the violence was viscerally doing to the spirit of the people I was spending time with. Um, and that's taken time over the years. In part, you know, I've a number of the kids I knew from then have since been killed. And, um, and so I kind of know myself what that, that kind of deep sorrow, that deep pain. Um, but I think it's only now that I've really come to sort of reckon with how, as you know, as I write about Pharaoh, how it, it gets in your bones. Um, and it doesn't go away. I mean, I think there's this real myth out there that somehow, especially young people get accustomed and hardened or numb to the violence, but nobody, nobody gets accustomed or hardened or numb to it. That's simply not the case. It may be the way they present themselves, but I will tell you, and it's one of the things that I saw from all the people I spent time with in this book, is that they very rarely, if ever, talked about the violence in their lives. You know, the loss of a loved one or something they've experienced personally. And it's partly this feeling that nobody could possibly understand what they're going through. Um, and they're, as a result, they just, there's this utter sense of loneliness, um, and which is this kind of great paradox to live in a place as vital and lively as Chicago and feel so deeply alone. This audience member asks about Farrell's brother, Lafayette. One of the perks about my work um, is that many of the people, not everybody, but many of the people I write about become a part of my life and my family's life, and I feel so much richer for that. And so I'm still very much in touch with Lafayette and Farrell. Um, you know, it was very clear when I was working on that book um, that I was there to share their lives and share it in this very public manner. And in fact, when I began working on their own children here, the kids would all, you know, they could have cared less about the book. They just said, you know, you're going to be around when the book comes out. And so I promised them that I would stay around. But, but as a result, I always had my notebook out because I never wanted to, f I always wanted to remind them while I was there. And so I'm a little, feel a little private about sort of how they're doing now. But th they're both doing okay. It's been a struggle for both of them. They're 43 and 40. Um, so we just, um, we had a, um, <clears throat> Two weeks ago, we had a book party in Chicago for all the people in an American summer, which was kind of cool because all the people in the book got together and uh, and Farrell came. Um, and so, um, so I'm still very much in touch with them. And in fact, one of the, for those of you who have read There Are No Children here, and I don't want to give away the story, but you may remember um, Jimmy Lee. And Jimmy Lee was a guy who ran the gang that controlled the part of the projects where Farrell and Lafayette lived. And... Um, I'm going to give away the story, but it's okay. So Jim, Jimmy was, uh, um, uh, and Jimmy was a complicated guy. He ran a really robust drug trade, a very violent organization. But he also, you know, he took care of elderly and vulnerable people in the neighborhood. Anyway, he goes away to prison while I'm reporting the book, and I wanted to interview him. And I wrote him in prison, and he, uh, his lawyer advised him against talking to me, which probably was the probably good advice. Um, so I had to write about Jimmy Lee by talking to people in the gang and the community and the police and kind of, you know, create his character that way. And so I never met him. And then maybe seven years ago, seven, seven eight years ago, um, 
I was at uh, uh, this um, violence prevention organization and this gentleman comes up to me, looked to be a few years older than me, and he extended his hand and, I, and I'm terrible with faces and I said, you know, I'm sorry, I can't place you. And he said, Jimmy Lee. And I just, man, I just thought, man, I'm just glad you're shaking my hand. And, uh, uh, and he said to me, I'll never forget this, he said, I just, Alex, I just want one thing. And I thought, whatever it is, it's yours. And, and he said, I'd just like to get a signed copy of the book. And so, um, and he felt like I was really kind of nice to hear just from a completely kind of craft perspective. He just felt like I just nailed him in the book and um, in a good way. I mean, got him, you know, right? I mean, nailed him. And, uh, and, uh, and so Jimmy and I became friends. And in fact, I mentioned to you that I hung out at this little juke joint. Well, that was run by Jimmy. And so Jimmy's now working. You know, he's a testament to the fact that people have second acts in life. He's working on the streets and I'd go hang out with him. And, uh, and one of my favorite stories is we were at for lunch one day on the west side and this gentleman came by who knew Jimmy and Jimmy's introducing him to me and says, this is the guy who wrote that book, There Are No Children Here. And he looks at Jimmy kind of quizzically. He goes, were you one of the boys? And Jimmy yeah. goes, no, I was the villain. <laughs> Our next question is if Kotlowitz felt safe while writing this book. When I was at, when I was in the projects, you know, it was this really confined space, and so I'm not so naive to think I can walk into a neighborhood like that and just knock on doors and tell them, you know, I'm working on a book. Will you talk to me? And um, so I, what I do is I often find an institution or individuals who've got some sense of respect and dignity in the community. And so I, there in the first book, I hung out at the boy. It was then the boys club, and, uh, um, and the and just meeting the kids and the, the staff got to know me and I got to know them and unbeknownst to me, Major Adams who ran the club at one point took me around the neighborhood introducing me to people, telling them who I was and what I didn't realize at the time is he was introducing me to a lot of the gang leaders and telling them that I was okay. So actually, I actually never, working on that book, never felt under threat and I will tell you that in the 30 years since there's never been a moment where I felt personally th threatened. Um, you know, um, I first of all, I'm not, again, so naive to go into a neighborhood and just walk around and knock on doors. I'm going in with a sense of purpose. I usually am going in to meet somebody. Um, it's not to say that I haven't been in places where gunfire is broken out, but it hasn't been directed. It wasn't directed at me. Um, so, um, so to be, my wife says I've got a, like a kind of magic shield around me, but, <laughs> but, um, but I'm cautious. I'm not foolish about what I do. And, this question is about how Kotlowitz records conversations with his subjects. One thing for me is really important when I'm spending time with people is that I always have my notebook out, or if I'm recording them, it's even more evident because I, I, because I get to know people over time, and you know, inevitably, not with everybody, but friendships develop, and I don't want people to feel that somehow I've betrayed their confidence, like they. They might say to me, well, I didn't know you were going we're gonna to include that in the book. And, and it still happens sometimes, but at least people are really aware of what I'm doing. And I say to them, you know, please, if there's anything that, you know, is sensitive. And I, you know, anyway, I run into, you know, I mean, it happens that sometimes <laughs> I publish things and somebody says, I didn't realize you're going to do that. But I try as hard as I can to keep that from happening. I tend, um, I don't use a tape recorder a lot, and the reason for that is, um, is that I feel like the actual, there's something tactile about taking notes, and so when I'm doing that, I'm much more attentive to the conversation at hand. I mean, sometimes I have to ask people to slow down, bless you, sometimes I have to ask people to slow down, um, 
I will, um, when I've got to know somebody reasonably well, there are occasions when I know that there is a long litany of questions I have. I will occasionally, you know, if it's gonna take a couple of hours, for example, sit down with a tape recorder um, and record it. But you know, transcribing takes a lot of time or it's very expensive and then going back and reading transcripts is, can be um, uh, not the most fun. Um, so um, I mainly, take notes and then what I will do is if I'm working well is I'll take notes and then within the next few days try to type up all those notes. One, to make sure that I have an extra copy, uh, that God forbid I lose the notebook. Um, but more to the point is it allows me then to write down things that I may have forgotten to write down and like maybe clothes somebody was wearing or their mannerisms. And then it also allows me to begin to think of all the questions I still have that I still need to go back and and ask. This audience member inquires if Kotlowitz knows the causes of violence in these communities. I mean, I wrote about this a lot, and there are no children here, and so chose not to write about it here. But it's clear, it's, it's impossible to talk about these communities without talking about the history of race in this country. I mean, Chicago's a deeply segregated city. Um, anybody who's read ta Coates' essay, The Case for Reparations, knows how there was this concerted effort to keep uh, 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 blacks from becoming homeowners and, and, and acquiring equ equity over the years. Um, and so it's not by accident that, you know, that the, that the South and West Side is predominantly black and Hispanic um, and also desperate, much of it, not all, but much of it desperately poor. Um, and um, this also comes from years of, I think, utter neglect on the part of uh, uh, the part of the rest of us. Um, and so for me, the question is, where has everybody been? I mean, it's, you know, the, for me, one of the most sobering things about working on this book, you know, some 28 years after there are no children here, is how little things have changed in these communities. I mean, these are communities that are still reeling from the 2008 housing crisis, you know, uh, um, where in some of these neighborhoods, one out of every six homes are abandoned. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, I mean, and, and the thing that's key, clear to me is that, you know, you grow up in these communities and you don't have much sense of future and much sense of opportunity. There's a story that I don't tell in the book, but a number of years ago, um, Paul Collier, who was a, used to be work at the World Bank and then went on to write a book called The Bottom Billion. Um, which is a book about uh, the developing world, and it's really about how in much of the developing world there's these cycles of violence that keep them from growing economically. And what he found is that these cycles of violence happen mostly in countries in which there was great disparities of wealth. So in places like Chad, where virtually everybody is poor, there's actually very little violence. That it was in places like Nigeria and other places where you had this great inequity. So he comes to Chicago. It was his first time in Chicago and he spent a little time on the south side. And I remember talking to him after his visit and he said to me, you know, he felt like this is precisely what he had seen in the developing world where you walk out of your house in Englewood on the south side of Chicago, you look at this beautiful gleaming downtown, I think one of the most beautiful downtowns in the world, and you know what's not yours. And how can you not become resentful? Um, and so I think that's also what drives it. I mean, you, what you constantly hear on the street is 
that shootings happen over because somebody's been disrespected. This idea that people are looking for some way to find respect. The last question of the night comes from an audience member wondering if the reporting on these communities has gotten better. No, I actually think that my colleagues at daily newspapers and, and radio are, we're, are doing a much better job than they were 25 years ago. I, there's no question about it. Um, but we still have got a lot of work to do. And again, I point to you know, the death of, of Darren uh, Easterling, Lisa Daniels' son, um, and the newspaper that runs this story just simply about his convictions. Um, but one of the stories in this book, it's a very short story, is about a, a crime reporter at the Chicago Tribune. And there was a time at the Tribune when a murder would happen in the city, and they would just take the press release from the police department and rewrite it. And, and Pete Nickius, he decides he's going to go out, and he spends every night from like 10 o'clock in the evening till 6 in the morning going from scene to scene trying to suss out what really happened. And then he sort of gets beneath the stories. And I think there are more people like him um, now. So I'm much more encouraged than I was 20, 25 years ago. Uh, thank you very much for having me. That wraps up our Dakota County Library Wentworth event with Alex Kotlowitz. Make sure to catch our next Club Book podcast with Emily Bernard at Ramsey County Library, Roseville. Tennessee native Emily Bernard is intimately familiar with and endlessly fascinated by the complexities and paradoxes of growing up as a person of color in the American South. She explores the theme in Black is the Body, stories from my grandmother's time, my mother's time, and mine. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.